This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffeehouse Shots. This week we had the sad news of the passing of Alistair Darling, age 70, who served as Chancellor of the Exchequer under Prime Minister Gordon Brown from 2007 to 2010. To discuss his memory and his legacy, I'm now joined by Fraser Nelson, editor of The Spectator, and Catherine McLeod, former political editor of The Herald, who served as a special advisor to Alistair Darling during his time in the Treasury. I suppose to begin with you, Fraser, on hearing the news, what were your initial memories, I think, in terms of what we will think of when you think of Alistair Darling? Well, the first news was astonishment. He was young. He was 70 years old. Um, He was not, you know, he still seemed to me to be in pretty good health, though I didn't know him anything like as well as Catherine does. He gave an interview to the Times just a few weeks ago. Um, And it was, he was somebody you you expected to hear from for for, for quite some time. But it seems, from what I gather, he knew, he'd known for quite some time he was ill, but he didn't let on. And that is Alistair down to a T. But the other strange thing or strikes me about him is that he was a chancellor in very controversial times, a chancellor during the Great Crash. He ought, technically, he ought to have been a divisive figure, an unpopular figure. He would be the face of um, telling people how bad things were going to be. And yet he emerged from that crisis with his approval rating higher than it was when he went into it and with his incredibility significantly enhanced as a result of his handling of this crisis. Now, I can't think of a finance minister anywhere in the world who walked through that with, in the same way. And it was during that time where his characteristics of decency, of calm, of honesty, really kind of shone through. You see quite often in politics, you, you um, I, I might say to you, Katie, oh, so-and-so's got a, he's a really nice person deep down, even though he seems a bit abrasive um, in front of the camera, or you can get the other way around, like Ken Clark. But you can, Alistair Darling was as good and as decent and as nice as he as he came across, so that's the the tributes to him have been instant. They've been very generous, and they've also been very true. I think to one of the most highly regarded, I think, senior Labour figures to come out of that government. And Catherine, you've written a piece for Coffee House uh, released today about your memories of Alistair. And as Fraser said, you knew him uh, much better than most. Um, for listeners, I wonder if you could just say, when, when you first met him, of course, you were a journalist. What, what were your initial reactions? Well, Alistair was always very well disposed to journalists, principally because he'd married a journalist. And I was in the fortunate position that he'd married a former colleague of mine, his wife, Maggie worked for the Herald. So he was not tricky like some politicians and wary. And if he trusted, you know, if you established a relationship of trust, Alistair did trust you. And he told you things that he, um, that if, you want, if you, he wanted you to be as well informed as possible. He didn't tell you things and say, now don't print that. I'm only telling you that because it's you. And that was, so you knew that if Alistair was telling you something that he, you could use it. He wasn't interested in playing games. He was not frightened to say, I'm not going to tell you that for me next week and I might have something to say. And that's my relationship, that was my relationship with him. 
Fraser, was that your relationship when you were covering? Well, no, I was Catherine's opposite number. She was a political editor of the Herald, as political editor of the Scotsman. And I always felt hopelessly outgunned by Catherine doing that job in many, many ways. Uh, she had a quality of contacts I couldn't hope to match, and she knew completely what she was talking about while I was only guessing. Um, but, uh, but but when I did come to have contact with them far, far later on, I remember I once, um, I once had lunch with them in the Treasury, and he, uh, again, I, even though I'm off the right and he's off the left, um, he struck me as being, you know, to be honest, quite conservative. Now, I know Catherine would be able to put me right here, but he was fiscally, he was a guy, as Catherine says in her piece, he didn't like spending his own money, he didn't like spending the, the, the country's money. He had a real sense of responsibility in a way that quite a lot of conservatives don't about whose money it, it eventually was here. Um, and also he took the view that during the crisis you needed to be completely honest with people about how things were. And he, he was in a position where he had to nationalise the banks and this was, you know, huge decision that they were basically having having to take, um, and I remember I remember one interview, Catherine. I'm sure you remember this. He gave it was at the Guardian interview he gave in the Isle of Skye. Was that right? The Isle of Lewis. Lewis, of course. That's where his how his, his mother's family are from. Yeah, and he sort of came out at the end of a long summer period, and he gave a very candid interview that was not entirely on script about what was happening, much to Gordon Brown's um, fury at the time. But this was the kind of man that he was. He, he, right now, everybody, this was the first, you know, we've been through several financial roller coasters since, but this this one where you, where you needed to have somebody at the helm you could trust. And he wasn't, several times, I think, he has shown himself not interested in political games as well as, as journalistic games. He um, And that's, I mean, he was transport secretary for a while. He was seen to be a man who would put out flames, as it were, um, not a particularly exciting man. And but that's exactly who you wanted at that time of the um, the crisis. I may say he was always keen on Fraser and the Scotsman. Alistair was very much an Edinburgh MP, and he thought the Scotsman was very important. And when he was talking about Labour Party politics, I mean, there was a lot right about the Scottish Labour Party, but there's a lot for which it could be criticised. And he was always really careful to say. That's the waste of Scotland. That's Glasgow. That is not Edinburgh. Politics on the East Coast are different. And he was very proud of that. Um, Catherine, you were with him when he was in number 11. And as Fraser just touched on, I think that's something that's been uh, spoken of a lot uh, since the sad news. Was Alistair Darling's handling of the financial crash, his honesty in talking about the situation? And he spoke at a later date about the forces he unleashed as a result. I wondered if you could just uh, relive it slightly for listeners, what what that period was like for him. Well, that interview was um, remarkable in the the strength of hostility that came from number 10 about it. Alistair had said exactly the same thing about worse crisis for 60 years in the Times the week before. We were asked, he was asked to do the Guardian interview in the run-up to um, the Labour Party conference. Because Donald MacLeod, who was a very, very good photographer, had great shots, it was a good day, the Guardian phoned us and asked us if we would move it forward and we said yes. Then on the Saturday, Friday night, when I had been out, when I came in, there must have been about 20 calls on my phone saying the desperate journalists wanted me to phone them. And it was because of what Alistair had said in The Guardian. Well, we didn't really know what he'd said that was remarkable in The Guardian because he'd said it all before. And it was this, this 
you know, concern about the worst recession for 60 years. I don't know if anybody would have noticed it if there hadn't been an operation to criticise Alistair. And perhaps some of his critics within the government thought it was an opportunity to get rid of him. Fraser, what do you think the lessons are that um, politicians will learn from Alistair Darling's legacy? Because you've had Rachel Reeves in her tribute saying she's going to miss the advice that she received from him and she's thinking about, of course, uh, being the next Labour Chancellor. Well, I was actually thinking quite a lot of Alistair Darling during COVID because that was an emergency comparable to the, the crash, of course, with public health implications way beyond it. But there, what you needed fundamentally was honesty, transparency. I mean, that is how you... the The worse the situation is, the more honest you need to be. You don't cover things up, you don't spin, and that is... Now, that can be very, very difficult for politicians because their instinct is to put a good gloss on things. Their, their, their instinct is to come up with some clever narrative that will get them through next week and position them for greatness. I think that throughout his career, Darling basically... Never really, strangely for somebody who ended up as Chancellor, wasn't particularly interested in self-promotion or to create a kind of image of himself. He was a public servant in the purest sort of understanding of the word. Catherine says in her piece about how she was, he was staying at her um, with her in Essex when he got the call to be Chief Secretary to the Treasury. He was about to go off on holiday then, and the first thing he wanted to do was go to work, to kind of like get out of holiday to go to, to, go to France and to get stuck into this um, this great shadow job that um, he was to become so well known for. If you wanted to see this from a cynical point of view, then ask yourself, why was it that Darling ended up more popular than when he went in? Why did he manage to go through a crisis with the greater... Because normally the traditional playbook is that if you ever see a crisis, everybody hates you. Gordon Brown would always say, well, it was during a, the financial crisis, did for my chances, etc. It doesn't have to. If you can find it with yourself to be completely honest to people, not to gild the lily, and then people will see that, they'll you can come across as an honest person doing their best in incredibly difficult circumstances. And had that happened a lot more during the pandemic, then I think we'd all be in a far better place. And Catherine, just on that, reading your piece, I thought what really came across was what a kind man Alistair was, particularly probably in the things that... um, Lots of our listeners don't see. Uh, you, you mentioned, you know, him calling in on you when you had a difficult time. And, and are there any particular, you know, memories that you'll particularly have of him going forward? Well, you know, I've, I've been with the family for the last two days and they've been inundated with people acknowledging how kind Alistair has been to them. Um, you know, young people in their 20s who wanted to speak to Alistair about the financial crisis and been astonished that he was prepared to speak to them for two or three hours to do their master's or to do their PhD. And Richard Holloway called at, um, in the house today and you know, just saying that the number of times that he was able to speak to Alistair and ask Alistair's advice for people that were struggling and Alistair gave it freely and tried to do his best to help him. So Alistair did lots of things in... Um, in very kind ways. During when they were in number 10, I mean, Alistair wouldn't have done half of it, I may say, without his wife. But there was people across the door of Downing Street that will, had never crossed it before and will never cross it again because she reached out to Sistema, she reached out to... I remember going to see a crowd of... I walked in after the budget and sort of looking at people and thinking I vaguely recognised them. And I realised that there were kids from Tottenham that my son had played football with 
and they were wearing my children's clothes because they didn't. They thought they they hadn't got decent clothes to go into number ten themselves. So every night of the week, nearly there was Maggie was hosting. Alistair were hosting functions that was trying to, that was either helping to raise money for ovarian cancer or for music or for the Gaelic College in Sky. Lots and lots of charity dues. I may say that Alistair sometimes thought that they could have done a bit a few fewer. But nevertheless, he went along with it. And just finally, Fraser, George Osborne has cited two decisions or areas where he thinks uh, Alistair's legacy is the strongest, including the handling of the financial crisis. Though, of course, he didn't say that at the time when he was opposing Alistair Darling. But secondly, the Scottish referendum where he led the campaign to keep the United Kingdom together. Do you think that would be one of the biggest legacies? Uh, certainly, it's one of the. He won't be particularly remembered for, for that, but he did in Scotland play a, a pretty big role. He had this phrase that once you leave Union, there's no going back. Um, and I think he was. He came to, as Catherine says, he was a, a very Scottish politician. You know, he, was, well, he wasn't somebody who could be regarded as um, having like mentally left his country behind. Uh, so you could argue, as Stephen Disley does, that he saved the country twice: uh, once during the crash and the other um, during the 2014 campaign. Uh, He was, you know, a heavyweight, a proper big beast. And at that time in the mid-90s, I just remember finding it odd how Scotland had produced so many MP, Scottish Labour, by the way, had produced so many um, people of that calibre, like Robin Cook as well, who died um, very young. And and with that, you kind of felt in the era as if, you know, certainly if you're a unionist, that there were so many Scots in government that you didn't really think that you were relegated to second secure status. And he was, I think, a dem- an embodiment, a demonstration of that. Scottish, British, very proud to be both. And exactly the sort of person that the um, Better Together campaign needed um, during their um, triumph. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Catherine. And thank you for listening. <laughs>